In your Bibles, please, to the 10th chapter of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10 will begin in verse 27. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. We have a quotation from the Reverend Stephen Charnock. Most of you will remember I've said about him several times. He's one of my favorites to read. Charnock says this, A regenerate man cannot despise admonitions and reproofs which would inform him and withdraw him from a sinful course. If he be in the way of life that keeps instruction, then he that refuseth reproof is in the way of death. Proverbs 10, 17 he is in the way of life that keeps instruction, but he that refuseth reproof earth. It is put in a milder expression. But if you observe the opposition, it amounts to the inference I make. So Proverbs 15, 9 and 10, the Lord loves them that follow after righteousness. Correction is grievous unto them that forsake the way. And he that hates reproof shall die. Here is a plain opposition made between them that follow after righteousness which is the character of a regenerate man, who is therefore the object of God's love, and that person that accounts correction grievous and hates reproof, and he is not one that follows after righteousness to pursue or embrace it, and therefore not the object of God's love, but the mark of death. So, Stephen Charnock, from his Collected Writings, Volume 5. So we have taken this portion, 10 through 27 of Proverbs 10, to speak about what we've called the antithesis. You'll remember that, the antithesis. So this antithetical uh, nature of things as they are presented in Scripture. There is such a thing as good and evil. There is such a thing as that which is acceptable and unacceptable. There are the people of God and the not people of God. We looked at the groups of people in the afternoon service for a couple of weeks. We said this starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where we have the seed of the woman and then the seed uh, of the serpent. And Jesus and John Baptist both speak of that when they talk to the Pharisees and call them a brood of vipers. We're hearkening back to Genesis 3 there. Then there were many other places of scripture that we looked at. Uh, we ended up with, with regard to our application on that to talk about our associations, our friendships. And we ended that discussion up last week in Hosea chapter 7, and we were very brief in Hosea 7. I'd like to return there for just a moment and reemphasize 
with maybe just a, just a couple of moments more, what we could only do very briefly last week because of time. So if you'll turn with me to Hosea chapter 7, begin our reading in verse 8. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face. And they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. And we said last week, and so we'll say again, that if we do not guard our associations, and if we mingle ourselves freely in friendships and unnecessary association, we talked, didn't we, about commerce and business and how uh, the the Bible is very clear. We do commerce and business with unbelievers. We have association with unbelievers, with our neighbors and so on. But they are not our bosom friends. They don't become our confidants and our, our close associates. They remain where they ought to be, and that is at arm's length, where we might be an example to them, but we are not tainted or infected with the attitudes and paradigms that they hold to. Remember that in Proverbs 21.4, the authorized version reads, the plowing of the wicked is sin. In modern versions, it says the lamp of the wicked is sin. Those two expressions are tantamount to the same thing, right? If the plowing of the wicked is sin, that is even his most mundane activities. He gets up in the morning and he pulls his shoes on, it's sin, He pulls on his trousers, it's sin. He gets in the car and starts and goes to work and it's sin. And why is it sin, beloved? Because in every activity that he does, he does for himself. And he seeks not to glorify God, nor to conform his behavior to the standards that God has set forth. He's not doing any of that. In fact, he is a rebel against that. That's how we all come into this world, beloved. Rebels. The carnal mind is not just, uh, you know, Paul doesn't say in Romans 8, 7 that the carnal mind is ignorant of the law of God and so not subject to the law of God. No, it says that the carnal mind is enmity against the law of God. That is, there's real animosity there. There's real hatred and rebellion against the law of God. We cannot form those kinds of associations What was it for Ephraim to do so? He was changed. His strength was drained from him. That is his strength for holiness, his strength for obedience, his strength for righteousness. It was drained from him, quote, and he knew it not. He was turned or jaded or changed and he didn't recognize it. This is one of those reasons why we must remain clear of those as it says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, those evil communications that corrupt good manners. And we must surround ourselves and ourselves be to others those upright associations where we can, by way of example and encouragement, further one another along in faith and in obedience. Okay, so that was the last couple of sermons in a nutshell. Pastor Riddell, why didn't you say it like that and Move on to something else then. 
Well, because we talked about a lot of other things to support and buttress that to make it more memorable and hopefully more, uh, more affectionate in your obedience toward that. Okay, so remember then that um, there, are, um, there is some communion that we have with those uh, who are not of Christ in natural revelation. We must also understand that those who do not know the Lord cannot but draw down the high calling of the Christian uh, that he has to serve and glorify the Lord in everything. And so caution and wisdom is in order. Romans 12, 9, 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 12, 1 Timothy 3, 7, Colossians 4, 5. All of those passages tell us that we need to maintain this posture of wisdom toward those that are outside the church, outside the communion of Christ. So, so much for the two humanities. I would like to move on now to the two ways. There are two ways described in the Bible as well. Not just two humanities, but two ways. There is the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. There's the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And there's not a middle way, beloved, between those. We're told that over and again in the Bible. Um, we, can, we can turn all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. So please turn with me there. If we remember what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'll remember why he speaks to them about the two ways. Remember that this is the generation of the children of those who died in the wilderness. These will enter into the land as adults now. It's been 40 years since they came out of Egypt. These were the children of whom their parents said, Oh, no, 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 no. We can't go into the land of promise. Our children will become a prey. These are the children that will inherit. And so Moses is setting up their behavior as they ready themselves to enter into the promised land to take hold of the inheritance that the Lord has promised them and as they work that inheritance for his glory. We'll begin our reading in verse 15. <clears throat> See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish, and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither Thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that thou, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Two ways, beloved. This, this afternoon's sermon, it will be short because of the length of our readings. But that's okay because the prospect of it is very simple. 
It's simply talking about the two ways. There are only two. There's the way, as Moses will say it here, of life and of death. You'll remember wisdom personified at the end of chapter 8. She will say, all that hate me love death. Remember that? It's the last words of Proverbs chapter 8, where that chapter uh, wisdom is personified. She is the, the, the uh, true woman to be sought, right? There's folly that cries out, but there's wisdom that cries out as well. So life and good is set over in our passage before us against death and evil. Walking in the ways of God is associated with life and good. Love to God, faith in Him and in His Christ and all the good fruit that comes from walking in that way. But we also note that idolatry is associated with perishing and being rooted out of the land. Then the Lord says, uh, speaking of himself in the third person, the Lord thy God is your life. That is cleaving to him. He is our life, beloved. What does that mean, practically speaking, rather than it being a simple, bare confession? Oh yeah, the Lord is my life. Yeah, that's right. What does that mean? It means that we rise in the morning and our first thoughts are of him. How we might serve him and please him this day as children to a father. It means that we read his word and saturate our minds with it rather than everything else which runs down the pipe these days. Such that we might learn to think God's thoughts after him. And that the way of our thoughts is the way of life. And so we read scripture. We meditate upon scripture. We pray scripture back to God. We sing scripture back to him as well. Oh yes, we offer our requests. We did that this afternoon together as a people. But all of those are sweetened and informed and guided in the way of life. When we work in the, in the world, say we're a tradesman, we labor as unto the Lord. Like Paul will say to the servants in Colossae in chapter 3, he'll say, you know, in your service, slave, you serve the Lord Christ. So serve him with your strength. Walk in the way of life even in your service. In other words, beloved, what we're going to confess as the people of God is that there's nothing in this life that's neutral. It's either going to be on one way or the other. And while it's true, we may not think of that in every moment of our lives. It is also true that if we would think of that every moment of our lives, our lives would be improved. We go to the store, we go shopping. I can't think of what it means off the top of my head to say I'm shopping for the Lord my God or for his glory. And yet there is an aspect of our lives that must adhere even to things as, quote, mundane as that. Paul will make it so when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. There is only two ways. There are only two ways, beloved. Either we're in this particular activity or that particular activity on the way to life and confessing that way to life or sliding back from it. If our shopping is driven by greed and avarice and carnality, we're not helping ourselves at all. If there's no distinction between us and the wicked who live in this world who do everything for themselves. There's that section in Zechariah. I can't remember the chapter now. Maybe chapter 
It's not chapter 4, it's later than that. Where the Lord will say to those children of Israel, And when ye fasted in the fifth and in the seventh month, did ye at all fast unto me? Even unto me, the Lord says. That we can take our religious duties, if you will, and we can do them for ourselves. And we can push them away from the way of life. They no longer draw us to the Lord. Instead, they advance us in our independence from him. That's what self-righteousness does, right? When the Pharisee stood in that parable of Christ's, he said that he stood and prayed thus with himself. In other words, he was advancing his own estate in his very public prayer. So, beloved, these two ways, we'll find them from one end of Scripture to the other. The interesting part for us as human beings is this, that while there are some things that only belong on one way or the other, like we heard from Ephesians 5 today, there are some things that can appear on one way or the other. Right? We talked a moment ago about the plowing of the wicked or the lamp of the wicked. If his plowing is sin, that means you know he goes out and he does it for himself. If it's his lamp, if lamp is the correct translation of that Hebrew word, um, then what we have there is the light that is in him, which is what Christ talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, is darkness. Right? If his lantern is sin, that's what guides him. Even in things that are otherwise lawful, beloved. And so this venture that we have here, this understanding that we have, this this adventure that we're on together as Christian people, it's only going to be on one or two paths, right? Only one or the other of those two paths. There's the way that leads to life. And then there's the way that declines from life. And that leads to the grave. Solomon makes that very clear as we've already seen in our study of the Proverbs all the way up through chapter 9 in that masterwork on wisdom, right? Where Solomon will say, there's this simple one. And he's drawn aside to the, to the harlotish woman. And how does he say it? He does not know that the dead are there. Her ways, they've inclined to death. The way of folly, it it inclines to death, beloved. So there is much that passes for Christian truth that is mere folly. And we've talked about some of that already in our talk through the Ten Commandments and will worship and and, uh, making up commandments. Right? Jesus will say to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, you know, you've displaced the commandment of God with your tradition. Oh, you've, you've garnished it and decorated it as if it is the way of life. But it's not. It's not the way of life at all. These things then must be informed by Scripture and not by human desire or good intention or any other such thing. The successor to Moses, Joshua, speaks much in the same way to the people at the end of his tenure as well. Isn't it interesting? At the end of Moses' tenure in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses sets before them the way of life and death. At the end of Joshua's tenure in Joshua chapter 24, 
he does much the same thing. So turn with me there. Joshua chapter 24. Let's see, what is our verses? We're looking at verse 15 and following. We'll begin in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in the land, therefore, we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, But we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice Will we obey? So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. And shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. Those are great words. Would that we had civil leaders, ecclesiastical leaders, that would speak to us in this antithetical way and reveal to us, rather than the squishy middle, that they would reveal to us the way of life and the way of death. And that we must put away the gods of our age and mingling with those gods in such a way that our worship to God begins to look more like the worship of the world instead. Our service toward God begins more to look like the service of the world instead. I believe, brethren, that we have not yet scratched the surface in uh, putting away sin and cleaving to the Lord as we ought, and that if the church would indeed, as we have said, reform, and the Lord would blow freshly upon us by his Spirit, that the world would once again be turned upside down with the way of the Lord. 
Oh, that the Lord would make it so and that the Lord would grant to us the mercy and the grace of being a part of that reformation. So, um, the other thing that I wanted to mention in this passage is that, um, let's see, where is it here? In verse 15, Joshua makes a startling statement. In our day, it would be called child abuse. Listen to what he says. And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Fathers and mothers unite with your fathers, with your with your husbands in this, excuse me, unite with them in this, that your families are dedicated to God. There's no other way for you but that. You have the authority from your heavenly Father to determine that for your households. Joshua makes that plain here. So, don't let the world browbeat you into some sort of child emancipation or some other portion of your household that it would be emancipated from the oppressive patriarchy of the Christian religion. Instead, press ahead as Joshua does. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As David did after he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and threw out the Jebusites and set the ark in the midst of Jerusalem. Then he went home to bless his house. Do that. Say to your family, this is a Christian household. As for me and this household, we will serve the Lord. Or mother and father together. As for us, we will serve the Lord. You have that authority and you must exercise it. You will be drawn to account before God if you do not. This is a part of the way that God has blessed us in our families, that we may keep the way of life. Remember that one of the greatest things about the baptism of infants in the Presbyterian and Reformed churches is that we consider those children to be in covenant with God by virtue of their being born into his kingdom, and then they are owed Christian nurture and education. And to deny them that, is to do worse than keeping them from food and clothing. Okay? All right. Very good. I know you know that. We need those reminders and those encouragements, and we need somebody to stand up and say it so that we can get behind it, right? And that helps us. Praise the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 6, and we'll just do a brief survey through Jeremiah here, as Jeremiah talks about the two ways. Jeremiah 6 verse 11 therefore I am full of the fury of the Lord I am weary with holding it in I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together for even the, the husband with the wife shall be taken the aged man with him that is full of days and their houses shall be turned unto others 
uh, with their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out mine hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, from the least of them even unto the greatest of them. Everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not ashamed at all, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Also, I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. So Jeremiah sets those two ways forward there. A few more passages that I want to comment generally on Jeremiah, because there's something that I think is worthy of gleaning from him. Notice in 21 of chapter 7, so turn the page over. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. You see the two ways described there. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15. Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity. And they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in paths in a way not cast up to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Then we'll skip over to chapter 31. Verse 9. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. We skip over to 42. And verse 3, now verse 2. And they said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant. For we are left but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us, that the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk, and the thing that we may do. May I say, beloved, that sometimes as we see here in Jeremiah and as we, uh, as we are turning back to chapter 21, because I want to show you something interesting there. Let me speak for a, for a moment before we read in chapter 21. The way of the Lord 
in the days of Jeremiah was off-putting to the people. They believed that the Lord would continue to forgive them no matter what they did, that there would never be any judgment, that there would never be any chastisement, that Nebuchadnezzar would never come and destroy their city, even though they walked, as we read, after the evil imagination of their own heart and after the other gods of the land, especially the Baalim that came from the northern kingdom. They believed that they could do all of that and still the Lord would never cause them to be taken away captive. Then the prophet Jeremiah comes along and he says, here's the way. Let me tell you what the way is. And so now we read in chapter 21, notice verse 8. And unto this people thou shalt say, thus saith the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Does that sound familiar, beloved? The way of life and the way of death. Now what is that way? And how are they distinguished? Listen. He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live. And his life shall be unto him for a prey. For I have set my face against the city for evil and not for good, saith the Lord. And it shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Isn't that interesting? Their expectations of what the way of life was were completely backward. And why was it backward? Because they had listened to their own hearts rather than hearkening to the voice of the prophet that stood in their midst. Jeremiah told them once and again, leave the city, go be taken captive. They will take you away to a, to a city, Babylon. There you will marry and give in marriage. You will prosper, you will build houses until the time that I, the Lord, call you back to Jerusalem. They said, mm -mm, that's not the way of life, Jeremiah. Sorry, you don't know what you're talking about. They said, the way of life is to stay in the city. And Joshua, I'm sorry, and Jeremiah said, no, the way of life is to be taken captive. The way of death is to remain in the city. And of course, we understand, don't we, that that's exactly how it happened. That those who were carried away captive, they lived in Babylon and, oh, 40 or 50,000 of them returned after 70 years to rebuild the city with Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. The rest... Even King Zedekiah, who refused to listen, he also died. And the last thing that he saw was the death of his sons. Right? Beloved, sometimes the way of life is going to be to walk entirely by faith and not by sight. It's going to be to hearken to the word of the Lord, even in the face of great discomfort and difficulty, even when our gut tells us something else. And beloved, don't we find too often in Christianity that people follow their gut and not the word of God? Their inclinations, their experience, and not the word. The way of life, beloved, is to follow the word of God. It is not to, to buy the line of the world. And what is the line of the world? Well, there are many of them. 
they'll, they'll tell you that, that if you can uh, you know, borrow other people's money and spend that and go into debt as much as you can, and that's the way of blessing. And the Bible says the opposite. Who are you going to believe? Having children to the glory of God, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, even lots of them, is a blessing. And the world says, no, that's just too much work and too expensive. Who are you going to believe? The Bible says one day in seven is holy unto the Lord. You don't work in it. You come and worship the Lord. And line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, you advance toward the kingdom of heaven. And the world says, that's a day that belongs to families. That's a day that belongs to you. That's my me day, my me time. Who are you going to believe? The Bible says, stay active in the means of grace, like we heard earlier today. The means of grace are the means of perseverance. How will we keep ourselves from falling away? By keeping, if, we, if I can use a colloquial expression, by keeping our hand hot in the things of God. And how do we keep our hand hot in the things of God? By being here. By participating in the worship service. Not just here at CCRPC, but here generally in a faithful church. Hearing the word of God faithfully preached. Praying to the Lord. Reading the scripture at home with our families. Saturating our mind with scripture. Pushing out worldly thinking. That's the way of life. The world says, no, it's not. It's actualizing yourself. Making sure you're taken care of. Have fun. That Christian life, that's not much fun. Remember the old adage, what is the definition of a Puritan? You remember that? That's the, that's the people, those, those Christians that, who are afraid that somewhere, somehow, someone might be having fun. That's not a proper definition of Puritanism. All of life for the glory of God, that's more like Puritanism. And that sounds to me and to you, I'm hoping, more like the way that leads to life. All of life for the glory of God. Everything brought to his feet. Serving the Lord explicitly in explicit worship when we come together as his people. And then serving the Lord with everything else in those other things that we do to his glory for the rest of the week. The world says, uh, you know, save up your money and, and you know, save up a million dollars and then kick up your feet and be happy for the rest of your life. Retire. Take it easy. And the Bible says, thou fool, this night shall thy life be required of thee. And then whose shall those things be which thou hast so diligently laid up? The Bible also says that sloth makes a mess of a man. Who are you going to believe? Which way are you going to follow? We make those decisions first thing every day, don't we? Every day we make those same decisions. Which way? Are we going to run in today? Will it be the way of life? Or will it be the way of death? One popular songster of a couple of decades ago said, Every whisper, every waking hour, I'm choosing my confession. Sadly, he chose the wrong one. But he spoke a bit of truth there, didn't he? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. And we'll close with this. Matthew 7, chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. 
For this is the law and the prophets, right? The second great commandment. Love thy neighbor as thyself, and so on. Now verse 13. Enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Why are there few that find that way because it's straight by straight don't think s-t-r-a-i-g-h-t think of s-t-r-a-i-t that is that it is narrow it is pinched it's one of those canyons that you walk through that suddenly close in on you that scratch at your elbows and your shoulders and your knees and leave its marks upon you as you as you wake as you make your way through Much rather, much more comfortable to travel in a broad canyon with a sandy bottom, with no stones, with with nothing to impede your forward progress or to upset you in any way. But Jesus will say the way is narrow. It's not comfortable. It is contrary, isn't it, to our nature. We come into this world as rebels. And so as we said before, there are those men who come to Christ and as soon as they find out that they must mortify their lusts, as soon as they find out that they have to give up their cherished idols, that's just too hard. But the way of life, that's the narrow way, Jesus describes it here. Oh, we talk about the narrow way, you know, oh, I got to get on the straight and narrow and all of that. And we, we, we talk about those things. But really what we're talking about is the way of our affections toward God. That there's nothing that stands between us and him. That whatever he asks us to do, no matter how hard, like David, when he met with King Saul, Saul said to him, uh, I hear you want to marry my daughter. You know, I can't marry your daughter. I can't afford a dowry. You think it's a light thing to be one of the king's uh, sons or sons-in-laws? No. And so Saul says, well, bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. And David brought 200. And why did he bring 200? Well, so we might have an object lesson to understand that although that way is narrow, for us it is not a burdensome way. It is indeed the light yoke of Christ. Well, we're out of time. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee thankful for the time that was given to us to ponder the ways, the way of life and the way of death, the straight way, the narrow way, the, the, and the broad way, the one that leads to life, the other to destruction, the way of wisdom, the way of folly, the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. Help us with Joshua, thy grace helping us to choose life, to choose this day, not to serve the gods of this age, the gods of entertainment and popularity and earthly glory, but to choose to suffer with Christ outside the gate, bearing his reproach. And Lord, we pray that as we walk in that way, that we might always find thy presence, comfort, and strength to help us with every step, and that we would always be an encouragement one to another to stay the course. Pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.